psychologist named Frank Peruzzi. He wrote an essay for Eon magazine called Books Are Dangerous, which um, I actually looked it back up. It's one of those things that I have filed away in a digital folder on my computer uh, because it was an interesting article and when all of this controversy about the, the mouse book um, being banned from schools came up, I just looked it back up just to see. Um, but while it didn't have really anything specific to add to the conversation that's going on right now, um, what it did remind me of or make me think of a little bit is just our, our discussion about the God we, that's hard to understand when we look at the Old Testament. And uh, in this article, Faridi says, um, probably for the first time in modern history, uh, young readers all around the world are demanding protection from the disturbing content of their college course text. Um, and so they're saying what they're saying to their course advisors that you have to put warning labels on some of these texts that we're reading because they disturb us to the point that they trigger us to mental health issues. And uh, so like some of the titles that have been mentioned are Virginia Woolf's Mrs. Dalloway or F. Scott Fitzgerald's The Great Gatsby have been mentioned as books that have triggers that they, they claim cause them to lose touch with reality and consequently become vulnerable to a series of mental illnesses. And Faridi says that while this is the first time in modern history that it's not a new phenomenon, people have been saying that reading is dangerous for thousands of years. He even quotes Socrates saying, that most people can't handle written text on their own. Um, so advocates are asking for trigger warnings to go on forced text in universities all over the world. Of course, the issue then is that that bleeds over into censorship, and so there's, there's a lot of debate about that. And um, this is how the author concludes his essay. He says, there is one point on which the crusade for the imposition of trigger warnings is absolutely right. It is not for nothing that reading was always feared through history. It is indeed a risky activity. Reading possesses the power to capture the imagination, create emotional upheaval, and force people towards an existential crisis. And to that I say, welcome to the Old Testament. <laughs> that's, that's kind of what it's like. Um, and honestly, like in in some ways, that is what the scriptures that God has preserved are designed to do: is to create upheaval in business as usual, and create upheaval in the status quo of our of our understanding of the world. Um, the Old Testament is really unique in that it has a way of causing the follower of God to have an existential crisis. Even if you don't have a crisis of faith, when you read the Old Testament, you probably still have a lot of questions when you're reading through it. But if you are one of the many people that wish there was a trigger warning on the front of your Bible as you entered into the waters of the Old Testament, you're not alone. So for example, the story that I want to I want to look at in, in particular tonight is in Genesis 38. It's the story of Judah and Tamar. Genesis 38. And Judah... This, this is this one is the reason I chose this one is because even though there are a lot of like really broken, messed up stories in the scriptures, this one is particularly interesting to me because Judah is the family line that Jesus would come through. Okay, Jesus would later be called the conquering lion from the tribe of Judah or the lion of Judah. And this, and the, the man in this story is that Judah. So let's take a look. Genesis 38, uh, beginning at verse 6. It says, Judah got a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the Lord's sight, so the Lord put him to death. Then Judah said to Onah, lie with your brother's wife and fulfill your duty to her as a brother-in-law to produce offspring for your brother. But Onan knew that the offspring would not be his, so whenever he lay with his brother's wife, he spilled his semen on the ground to keep from producing offspring for his brother. What he did was wicked in the Lord's sight, so he put him to death also. So many questions. We're not even halfway through. Okay? Verse 11. Judah then said to his daughter-in-law, Tamar, Live as a widow in your father's house until my son Shalah grows up. For he thought he may die too, just like his brothers. 
So Tamar went to live in her father's house. After a long time, Judah's wife, the daughter of Shuah, died, died. And when Judah had recovered from his grief, he went up to Timnah, to the men who were shearing his sheep, and his friend Tyra, the Adolamite, went with him. When Tamar, when Tamar was told, your father-in-law is on his way to Timnah to shear a sheep, she took off her widow's clothes, covered herself with a veil to disguise herself, and then sat down at the entrance to Enaim, which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that though Shelah had now grown up, she had not been given to him as his wife. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute, for she had covered her face. Not realizing that she was his daughter-in-law, he went over to her by the roadside and said, Come now, let me sleep with you. This is how he's grieving his dead wife. And what will you give me to sleep with you, she asked. I'll send you a young goat from my flock, he said. Will you give me something as a pledge until you send it, she asked. He said, What pledge should I give you? Your seal and its cord and the staff in your hands, he answered. So he gave them to her and slept with her, and she became pregnant by him. After she left, she took off her veil and put on her widow's clothes again. Meanwhile, Judah sent the young goat by his friend, the Adolamite, in order to get his pledge back from the woman, but he did not find her. He asked the men who lived there, where is the shrine prostitute who was beside the road at Enani? There hasn't been any shrine prostitute here, they said. So he went back to Judah and said, I didn't find her. Besides, the men who lived there said there hasn't been any shrine prostitute here. Then Judah said, let her keep what she has or we will become a laughingstock. After all, I did send her this young goat, but you didn't find her. About three months later, Judah was told, your daughter-in-law Tamar is guilty of prostitution and as a result, she is now pregnant. Judah said, bring her out and have her burned to death. As she was being brought out, she sent a message to her father-in-law. I am pregnant by the man who owns these, he said. And she added, see if you recognize whose seal and cord and staff these are. Judah recognized them and said, she is more righteous than I, since I wouldn't give her to my son Shalom. And he did not sleep with her again. So, did you catch all that? He... Two of Judah's sons die in marriage to his daughter-in-law, Tamar. He promises a son who is too young to be married to her when he comes of age, and then does not give her the son he promised for her security. And so she takes matter after his wife dies. She takes, learns his habits and watches his patterns and finds a way to secure herself an inheritance and um, care, which is to disguise herself as a prostitute and make herself available to her father-in-law. Then she keeps basically what would amount to his ID, you know, like his unique, his his ID, social security card, and birth certificate, right? Uh, that's kind of that's kind of what that's kind of what she keeps. She keeps that and uh, disappears. And Judah realizes that he will be he'll look a fool if he goes around saying, "I gave my ID, my social security card, and my birth certificate to this woman that I did not know." Uh, or and. Uh, now she's, uh, now gone. she's so gone, so he decides he to keep it a secret, and then, and then when his daughter gets daughter found out um, uh, of her of her sin, sin, sin she, reveals, she reveals, well, I may have sinned, sin, but you have you been have sinning, been and you are the one who did this to me. So, what a mess. And then she goes on to have a baby, the baby of her father-in-law, and that is the story. And there's so many questions. First of all, it's God is killing all of Tamar's husbands. Like, we don't know why even the first one died, other than it just says he was evil in the Lord's sight. Evil in what way? We don't know. I don't know if that's a question, but like, what do we do with that? And then, can you imagine what the youngest brother must have felt like? Shalah. Like, he's not of age, but he's to understand that when he comes of age, he's going to marry this older woman who was his brother's wife. And I imagine yeah, one day he one goes day up to his dad and is like, Dad, I'm going to marry who? who? And he's like, Dad, I will literally die if I marry this woman, first of all. That's my brother's wife. And second of all, she's cursed. Like, two of my brothers have already died. And then Tamar in this whole story, here's another question. What do we do with the fact that she just sounds like a piece of property getting passed off 
down the family line. And why does it seem like no big deal that Judah is going to see a prostitute and a shrine prostitute at that? So Tamar, Tamar is guilty, but nothing is really said other than you can't kill me because this is your baby. Nothing said about the fact that he went to see a prostitute. Nothing said about the fact that he went to see a shrine prostitute. So not only is he guilty of fornication, but he's also guilty of idolatry. Or he like he's worshiping or thinks that this woman represents another god. And so it seems like God is killing everyone in the story, but why doesn't this guy die? So we have prostitution, we've got this whole polygamy and remarriage issue, we've, and then we've got this kind of patriarchal structure. And why in the end does Judah's repentance look less like repentance and more like he was caught on one of those hidden camera shows? You know what I mean? Like, uh, what's his name, Chris? Uh, what anybody remember? Chris Hansen. Yes, it's like it's like Chris Hansen. It's like Chris Hansen came out and said, "See if you recognize this cord and seal and staff." So then he, sorry, you got me. Since I'm the one who paid to sleep with you and I'm the one who impregnated you, I'm not going to burn you to death. We're done here. And then it says he had nothing to do with her. He didn't sleep with her again. We're done. Like okay, you proved your point. This is in the word of the Lord. And everybody said, thanks be to God. So David Lamb wrote a book called God Behaving Badly as the God of the Old Testament Angry, Sexist, and Racist. And he actually just, spoiler alert, he argues, no, he's not. But he also says this. One of the easiest ways to misrepresent Scripture is to just ignore the problematic text. That we misrepresent Scripture when we ignore these texts, when we kind of gloss over them and say, oh, let's just get to Jesus. Let's just, let, you know, well, I don't understand that either, but Jesus is good, so let's just get there. And nothing makes us more comfortable than to ignore how sexually messed up everybody is in the Old Testament, right? Like, there's, we would just really like to gloss over all of that. As it pertains to love, sex, and marriage, the quote-unquote heroes of the Old Testament are very broken. And it's like, it's like in Genesis, Genesis 1 and 2, 2 we get the ideal of God's, of God's vision for sexuality, for flourishing, for marriage, and for life. But then from Genesis 3 on, no one hits it. Or they do hit it, but not in any of the right ways. All right, some of you are here. Like almost no one gets this right in the entire Old Testament. And when people read this, Christian or not, you have to ask, does God condone this? Is God for this? What is happening here? What is happening here? So there are tons of accounts of polygamy in the Old Testament, right? Jacob, who would later be called Israel, and his 12 sons making up the 12 tribes of Israel. Well, those 12 sons came from four wives. 12 sons from four wives. God's nation is made up of, a, of polygamy. Two wives, two concubines, like technically speaking, but concubines were essentially wives. Solomon, who is understood to be the wisest person who ever lived other than Jesus. So I guess we could say the wisest person in the Old Testament and who was blessed, maybe unlike any other person in all of the Old Testament by God, had a thousand wives. And that is not an exaggeration, okay? He had 300 wives, you know, that he actually made a covenant vow to, and 700 concubines. But again, a concubine is essentially under, they, they receive some similar securities as, as wives. He had a thousand wives. That's not just polygamy, that's polygamy. You know, like that's, that's Las Vegas glowing neon lights. Polygamy. <laughs> In the Old Testament. There's rape in the Old Testament. And the worst example of rape is in Judges 19, where a Levite is visiting a town and he has a concubine, and his concubine is gang raped and then left for dead. He wakes up the next morning and sees this, essentially his wife on the ground, having been gang raped and left for dead, picks her up, throws her on his donkey, and then she dies. And so he cuts her up into 12 pieces, sends them to, sends a piece to each of the tribes of Israel um, in order to say, this is the injustice that's been done against me. And this story and its consequences are how the book of Judges ends. Judges 19 through 21 is that story and all of the, everything that happened from there. 
and in the, it's messed up what happens from there they go and they uh they kill all the men of benjamin and then the women and children are left vulnerable and so they're told to go in and steal for the kidnap a woman and marry her so that the tribe of Benjamin will continue on, so that one of the tribes of Israel won't be blotted out. They throw a dance, basically, and then they say, just go into the dance and dance away with one of those women and marry them. And so then the book of Judges ends this way. Judges 21, verse 25, it says, And in those days Israel had no king. Everyone did as they saw fit. But when I read that, I want to say, well, not everyone. The women and children didn't do as they saw fit. They were at the mercy of all of these violent, horny men, right? I mean, let's just be honest. One scholar says about this Levite concubine, she is the most sinned against woman in the entire Bible. You have prostitution in the Bible. Tamar plays a prostitute. Rahab is a prostitute. You have incest in the Bible. Lot's daughters get their dad drunk and basically rape him so that they can get pregnant. There's adultery in the Bible. The most famous case of adultery being David with Bathsheba, which is also a case of abuse of power where he uses his power to more or less make her sleep with him and then uses his power to kill the husband when he can't ensure that people would think it was his baby. And then some of these people are often called heroes in the Old Testament, right? They're named in the Hall of Faith, Hebrews chapter 11. And so it's a little uncomfortable. And how are we supposed to read these stories of prostitution, polygamy, and the patriarchy in the Old Testament? I think there's three buckets that we kind of need as we read these stories to help us sort out the information that we're that we're reading and the first is a descriptive bucket a descriptive bucket in other words the integrity of faith in god is on display in the fact that the israelites are ruthlessly descriptive of their flaws Right, they the Israelites the victor gets to write the history book. So this is this is God's victory. This is God's recording of His victory down through history. And this stuff could have been hidden. It could have been glossed over. It could have other another version of these stories could have been told that made the Israelites look better than they were. And yet, God and God's people ruthlessly convict themselves. They, and it's a testimony, it's descriptive of God's character and integrity. But what it's not descriptive of, so when you, or what it's not, what it is not is it's not prescriptive. And that's going to be the second bucket we'll look at. And then we'll look at this third bucket called the narrative bucket. So when you read the Old Testament, you come across stories like David and Bathsheba, which let's just recount that for posterity's sake. David commits adultery with Bathsheba. He sees her on a roof. He calls for her. He's the king. He can't say no. And so he kind of gets to do what he wants. Um, and just for also for clarity's sake, he's considered guilty throughout the whole story. Bathsheba is not. And so David sleeps with her. He gets her pregnant. He tries to trick her husband into coming home to sleep with her. So it looks like his baby, but he doesn't because he's noble and he's not going to have enjoy himself while his brothers in arms are out on the battlefield. And then David has him killed and marries Bathsheba. And when you read stories like that, stories like Judah and Tawan, like Jacob marrying Leah, but only because... Leah's father, Laban, made him marry Leah, so it's a loveless marriage. It's a marriage of duty so that he can get to the woman he really wants, Rachel, and then all of the jealousy that springs up from that complicated love triangle leads both of those women to offer their maidservants to Jacob as concubines so that they might kind of battle with each other over who has producing the most sons for Jacob. All of those stories are descriptive. It's describing what happened. It's in the Bible. It's in the scriptures because it happened. It's not in the Bible because it's what should have happened. It's in the Bible because it's what did happen. There's really there's a huge difference between these two. Okay, it's not what should have happened. It's what did happen. So the Old Testament narrative is descriptive of deeply flawed humans, not prescriptive of how to act. 
Okay, are there lessons to learn from the story? Yes. In fact, Paul in the New Testament says all of these things were written down so that you could learn from, but they weren't written to us as a way of describing what is right and true and good. We can learn from our mistakes, but they aren't descriptive of what was best for our lives. When we look back on our past, and that we, we read, when we read, for example, when you retell, if, if you're honest with your kids and you tell stories about, you tell them the stories of your flaws and you say, I'm telling you this because I want you to learn from it. I want you, I want you to, to experience something better than what I experienced. I'm not describing this to you to prescribe a way of life. I'm describing this to you because it's what happened. And I want you to, at the very least, be able to learn from my mistakes. So, uh, Friedrich uh, Buechner, he, sa he says this about, this about the Old Testament specifically, the Bible as a whole, but the Old Testament specifically. He says, the Bible is a swarming compost of a book, an Irish stew of poetry and propaganda, law and legalism, myth and murky history and hysteria. Over the centuries, it has become hopelessly associated with tub-thumping evangelism and jury piety with with superannuated superstition and blue-nosed moralizing, with ecclesiastical authoritarianism and crippling literalism. And yet, just because it is a book about the sublime and the unspeakable, it is a book also about life and the way it really is. It's a book about people who, at one and the same time, can be both believing and unbelieving, innocent and guilty, crusaders and crooks, full of hope and full of despair, in other words, it's a book about us. Stories like Judah and Tamar are just descriptive of what happened. They happened to two very scared people, two very broken people. Judah didn't want to lose another son. He thought Tamar was like a bad omen. Everything Tamar touches dies. We don't talk about Tamar. No, 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 right? <laughs> he, had, he had one son left, and he was just scared. He said, I'm not giving him to Tamar. Tamar just wanted to honor her first husband and to have the security of a husband and a son, and that was actually her right, her lawful right. But instead, her second, second husband merely used her for sexual pleasure. He didn't want to give her a child. He didn't want to honor her with motherhood. And he most certainly didn't want to be responsible. So he did what he did. The scripture says he spilled his semen on the ground. And so God killed him because of the wickedness and selfishness of that. So she took matters into her own hands. Again, scared and broken, not knowing what else to do. And when we look at this story, we have to ask, what part of this is prescriptive? Like, what part of this is God saying, this is right and true and good. Go and apply this to your life. None of it, right? I mean, please tell me that you grasp that. Like, you're not to read this story and say, oh, that's how love, sex, and marriage works according to God. You read it to learn something. And one of the things that we learn is that God uses messed up people and messed up situations to accomplish his purposes, which is scandalous. Scandalous. But if you think about it, your story is scandalous too. God uses you, and you are messed up. That's what me too means, by the way, in a nutshell. If you really want to understand what we mean by that when we talk about that in our values. And we would say, we would be tempted to say anyway, to look at this story and say, but I'm not that messed up. Oh, really? Have you ever considered this? What if your worst sins were recorded in the highest-selling book of all time? Would you really be better than everyone else? Like, it's easy to say, well, we're not that bad. But what, what we forget is this is the best-selling book of all time, and the worst moments of people are recorded in here. If your worst moments were recorded in the best-selling book of all time, would you really make out better than they do? That's a, I, we've been having this conversation frequently with the, with the boys at home. They're like, if I was in the Garden of Eden, I wouldn't have done that. I mean, I was, if I was walking with God every night, and I'm like, 
But you do that right now. Like, do you understand that God wants to be present with you? And yet, do you still make choices almost daily, if not daily, to live apart from what he says is right and true and best? I mean, think about that. We want to say, man, if I walked with God, but have you experienced him on the mountaintop? Have you been in a worship service? Or have you been in the secret place at any point and had a profound revelation of God's presence and power that just totally flipped your world upside down? and then walked right out of that place and maybe been at your worst? I have. So would we? No. No. I guarantee you that if your life got put on display the way that their lives was, it would look... And that's the point. The Scriptures are trying to show us. Hey, you too. But that also means that the scandal of God's grace and mercy that He would use you is also for you too. The redeemable message of the Old Testament and the redeemable message most often in our lives is this. God figured out a way in His divine power to make something happen out of my mess. So do you know who the first woman named in the New Testament was? Not Sarah. Not Rebecca. Not Mary, the mother of Jesus. Not even Eve. It was Tamar. And not just any old place either. If you look at Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, it says this. It says, this is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah. So where is, where is Tamar listed? Let's see. This is, it, spoiler alert, it's right here in the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah. The son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac, the father of Jacob. Jacob, the father of Judah and his brothers. Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Now, there's actually no real reason to put Tamar in there, according to the way that genealogies are normally recorded, and he doesn't mention anyone else's mother, and yet there she is. This woman who played the prostitute to get pregnant by her father-in-law, the first woman to be named in the New Testament, and specifically to be named in the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the promised one of God, the whole, the, the whole scriptures are moving toward this pinnacle moment, and right there in the middle of it is Tamar, a messed up person who really has no relevance to the story, but there she is. And you know what? Judah made the list too, and that should shock us just as much. The guy who hired the prostitute that ended up being his daughter-in-law and then tried to burn her to death and only repented once Chris Hansen came out and read him his Miranda rights, right? He's in there too. And so is this prescriptive? Is it to say that this is, if you live this way, that God's gospel good, that's how God's gospel good comes about? No. But it is to say, it is descriptive that in spite of the brokenness of humanity, there is the scandalous grace of God. That's what this describes. Matthew is preaching the gospel in his genealogy. What he's saying, he's like, hey, you want me to show you the gospel? You want me to declare to you the good news of the Messiah? I'm about to get to that. It's Jesus. But let me preach the gospel to you before I even get to the gospel. God uses people like this. That's the gospel. God uses people like this. And then he's going to go on and say, here's why and here's how. His name is Jesus. But he preaches the gospel before he preaches the gospel. The gospel is that God uses broken people. That is the redemption story of the Old Testament. That's the redemption story of you and me. So the Old Testament, it's descriptive. It's descriptive of you and me. We need to find ourselves in these stories and hint, it's not, the good, it's not the good stuff that we should find ourselves in. All of you are broken people. I am broken people. Many of us are broken sexually. Sexually broken, messed up people that Jesus is redeeming. This is all descriptive of how God works through brokenness to accomplish His purposes in the world. That God would use broken people like you and me. That's one of the ways. So as we read these crazy stories, 
we need to understand that they're descriptive of what actually happened because God and his people were people of integrity just faithfully recording the story. And then we need to understand that they're descriptive of the scandalous grace of God from front cover to back cover that he would use a wretch such as you and me. The Apostle Paul would put it this way. In Romans 5, he's talking about the Old Testament and what the Old Testament law is for. And his conclusion is, where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. That's how Paul sums up the Old Testament. That's how Paul sums up the problem of Adam. Where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. Where sin increases, grace increases. Where our sin increases, God's grace increases. And just to be clear, like to, to continue in this point about the difference between descriptive and prescriptive, Romans 6 begins then, so should we keep on sinning so that grace may increase? Yeah, that's right, Megan Norte. You know some Greek. You've been paying attention in somebody's Sunday school class. By no means is the NIV translation. Yeah, it's a little stronger than that in Greek. But the point being, no, it's not prescriptive that we should sin for God's grace to go to work, but rather it's descriptive that in spite of our sin, in spite of the fact that every one of us has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and no matter how optimistic you are as a six or eight-year-old that you surely would have done better, like my boys are, there will be sin, but where sin is, so is God's grace. And Paul would go on then to explain that this happens through Jesus Christ our Lord. And what this means is that God is graciously inviting people with issues and sexual brokenness and, and every other kind of brokenness to be a part of his mission, to accomplish his purposes in the world. God invites broken people. And let me be clear about this. Not just people who were broken but got their act together, so now they're qualified. So that, that's a... That's a a little obstacle that I remember, like we had some conversations when I first moved to this church that we kind of all have to get over in our hearts. And the reason that we do that is because we worry for the safety of people, and then we should. We should carefully consider every issue, but we should never, ever, ever let self-righteousness be the reason that we hold a broken person back from the potential for God to use them. There are legitimate human concerns for safety sometimes to consider. But outside of those, God does not wait for us to get everything in order to use us. This might really mess with some people, but I have stood in pulpits while dealing with sin and seeing God bear fruit, right? Does that make sense? Like, that's hard for people to grasp. I... I'm being really vulnerable and putting my neck on a guillotine for you in saying so. But I don't think it does me any good to stand up here and act like I've arrived while the rest of everybody struggles like every human being does when the truth is that what we all need to do is fall on the grace of Jesus day in and day out and let him bring good out of us who are not good. That's one, that's, the, that's, a, that's a story arc from beginning to end describing. When we see these stories, they're mess. it's not God condoning. It's God saying, this is the human condition, and I refuse to let it be the end of the story. Where sin increases, God's grace increases. And God is not limited by human sin. He uses broken, disturbed people to accomplish His purposes. The Old Testament is not full of heroes. They're not all heroes. They're all broken. They're all broken. But he can work through polygamists, prostitutes, adulterers, and rape victims. And he does. And oh, by the way, Bathsheba is also named in Jesus' genealogy too. Four women are named in that genealogy. Two of them are prostitutes and one of them is a rape victim. And God doesn't say this is good. God says, I am good, and I have been and will continue to work through broken humanity. I am good, and I will take these people who are really messed up and really broken, and I will work through them. This is God's covenantal promise 
that he made with Abraham. Even though you might break this covenant, I will be faithful to this covenant. I'll be faithful to you. It's one of my favorite pictures in the Old Testament. When God makes the covenantal promise, they're supposed to walk between the sacrificed animals and through the river of blood together and splash the blood on both of themselves saying, if I break this covenant, I will become like this river of blood. I will join with this river of blood. But God touches Abraham, knocks him out. He doesn't let him take that covenant because he knows he can't keep it. And God walks through by himself as if to say, if you break this covenant, if I break this covenant, I'll pay the price. But also, if you break this covenant, I'll pay the price. I'm taking this covenant on behalf of both of us. This is God's covenantal promise that I will bear the full weight of faithfulness to this covenant. So there's a lot of hope for us when we look at the brokenness of sexuality in the Old Testament. When we read it, we're like, ugh, why is this here? We need to see a description of their brokenness and of our own brokenness as well and see God's wonderful grace working in spite of them and in spite of us. So that's really good news, right? But that doesn't deal with the way women are treated in the Old Testament. And some of the prescriptions, yes, prescriptions, there are laws in, in, num, in Leviticus and Deuteronomy in particular that almost seem to, um, to seem to condone some of the patriarchal and polygamous structures that in modern culture are really unfavorable to women and treat them like property. So what about those things? What about the fact that the Old Testament does also seem at times to be explicitly prescriptive about things that seem to oppress and hold down? This has led many to agree with a book put out by the Atheist Foundation of Australia who said this in one of their books, and it's become, it's become a phrase that's been quoted um, in podcasts and debates, and it's, it's this, it says, any honest-thinking person reading through the Bible cannot ignore the blatant misogyny and barbarity toward women. That's become, that's become an oft-quoted phrase and discussion starter that challenges Christianity as a viable way to change the world. So when you read through the Old Testament, it could be upsetting to see spiritual Hebrews like Abraham, Jacob, and David and see how they treat women. I'm even more conscious of it as I read through it with my kids, engaging with these stories, and I think about my boys, and I don't want them to read these things as prescriptive, and thinking about my daughter, and not wanting her to believe that the God that we serve has a low view of her as property. The polygamous and patriarchal culture that relegates women to bargaining chips and property, does God condone that? Because the laws don't forbid it, and there really isn't much, if any, rebuke in the Old Testament about the low place of women. Robert Alter is a Jewish scholar. He uh, taught at Berkeley in ancient Jewish literature and uh, also um, teaches, uh, teaches and, and uh, serves on panels with, with rabbi, Jewish rabbis, and he's written a book called The Art of Biblical Narrative. And in it, there's lots of good stuff in there. A lot of it's really academic, but I think this is really, um, I think this, this is, is really on target for what we're talking about tonight. It says, every culture practiced polygamy during this time. So it makes sense that the people of the Bible also practice polygamy. Why doesn't God seem to have to, anything to say about this? And then he, he goes on and he says, doesn't he though? Doesn't he actually have quite a lot to say and he explains, God's commentary on polygamy is seen clearly in the biblical narrative, in the story, if you don't just read them as these singular moments or an isolated law, but you read the whole story. When you read the Bible as a narrative story and start connecting the dots, you see that in every generation, polygamy wreaks only ha havoc. When you trace the thread of the mistreatment and subjugation of women, what you see in the biblical narrative is that those things lead to disaster at every turn for Israel. Think about this. Like, I'm just going to touch on a couple of stories. So think about Abraham and Sarah. So Abraham generally sees and treats Sarah as a bargaining chip. As they're traveling 
and he's growing in his faith for God, they, he actually, on two, three different occasions, his wife apparently is very beautiful, and he's afraid that enemy cultures are going to want to steal his, kill him so that they can take his wife. And so he actually lies and says that she's his sister. And so then these enemy kings begin to court her and until it's like there's a curse on them. And, and they, they realize like something's not right. Abraham, I think your God is cursing us and our people and, and, harm, and cursing my gods. What's going on here? And then Abraham confesses, oh yeah, she's not my sister. She's actually my wife. And these pagan kings are like, what have you done? Like we would have never... Courted your, sis- courted your wife if we had known that she was not, that she was not your sister and actually your wife. Like, and so he treat- we see him treat her as property, and then we see this whole thing, again, this whole like struggling to trust that God is going to be good and come through on his promises. And so he and Sarah, they can't figure out how God is possibly going to give them a child when they've been barren their whole lives, and they're now in their late 70s or early 80s. Um, and so... Instead, Sarah says, here, here's my maidservant, Hagar. Procreate with her, right? And so he does, and she gives birth to a son whose name is Ishmael. And then it says, essentially, that Sarah was just jealous of Hagar all the time to the point that he was abusive to her. And what we get a picture of is eventually Abraham is just tired of the catfighting in the tents, and Sarah is coming to him, wanting him to do something about it. And he says, listen, you do whatever you think is good. I just did what you told me to do. I don't want to be put in the middle of this. You take care of it. And he kicks her, she, or she kicks her to the curb, her and her son, to go be in the wilderness and have no, no financial means to take care of themselves. And it says that they are starving to death and that she puts... She has, her son, she has her son go way on the other side of the wilderness because she can't bear to watch him die. And then she just lays down to wait to starve to death. She gives him the last bread that they have and then she separates from him so she doesn't have to see him die. And then out in the wilderness, the angel of the Lord comes to her and says, I'm going to take care of you and I'm going to take care of your son and I'm going to make him into a great nation. But do you know... The descendants of Ishmael will become many of the tribes that will torment the Israelites for centuries. And ultimately, the descendants of Ishmael are, make up the Muslim people today. So God, in his goodness, takes care of a people that he knows is going to constantly be subverting his own causes. But what we also see in that story is that Israel's choice to live the same sexual ethic and marriage ethic and love and romantic ethic as the rest of the world, to, to live the same ethic about how to treat women and the way that they're viewed and used produces havoc. Or how about the, the other story that I mentioned already? Um, Jacob, who loved Rachel, but as a father, when you have daughters, the only good that, you, that that culture believed you could get from them is the, is the money that you'd get when they were betrothed to be married. And it wasn't good practice to give away a younger daughter before an older daughter because the older daughter's only getting older and becoming less valuable. It's like selling the brand new hot rod that everybody wants to buy before you sell the old clunker that nobody wants to buy. And so he, he tricks him. He uses his own daughters as bargaining chips, sends his daughter into a loveless marriage, steals labor from, from Jacob, creates this, and then in the process, Jacob's own disdain for Leah causes God to close up the womb of Rachel so that Jacob would repent and see some good in this woman and take care of her and love her, and it just creates this whole, and then they throw their maidservants into the mess, and, there's, and, it creates, and then it creates this favoritism where Jacob favors Joseph, and which creates the enmity between he and his brothers that causes them to throw them. Do you see, like, the story that God is telling in his, in his narrative is that while I am giving laws that are of the time, this is not 
the best. This is not the ideal, and in fact, it causes a lot of trouble, and it makes it even hard. It, it, it makes my job harder, too. The, the story he's kind of telling is like, hey, this is not good. So the Bible is actually subverting, not supporting, these ancient institutions. It's turning them on their heads and saying narratively that this is not the ideal. Polygamy is not the ideal. The ideal is found in Genesis 1 and 2. And then from that point on, all the rest of the stories prove that the way I created things is better than the way things are when you do it in your own understanding. All the rest of these stories just show what a mess sin causes. It's not my design. My design was Genesis 1 and 2, and everything was perfect and good there. Sin is Genesis 3 and on, and that's where all this mess comes from. So yes, God does allow polygamy. There are laws even in Deuteronomy and Leviticus that are built around polygamy. But I would suggest that knowing what we know from the story, we can look at those laws and, and maybe adjust our thinking a little bit. That while God allowed polygamy, it's probably better to think in terms of that God was working through polygamy. That God was working through broken people. And likewise, he was working through broken cultures and broken systems. That polygamy is not the ideal. It's not Genesis 1 and 2. But in that culture at that time, polygamy was the system that offered the most security and concern for wives and children. So he said, if that's what you're going to do, then you're going to do it this way, and you're going to make sure that you actually take care of women and children. That's what those laws are about. We talked some about that in the first week, that when we look at those laws, God is saying, these are the systems you're operating in. Well, if you're going to operate in them, you're at least going to do it this way so that they actually achieve what they set out to achieve and they're not just selfish means to live in a way that, find, that you find pleasing. What I want to say is that those, those laws are anything but sexist. They were actually extremely protective of women in that culture, which I think brings up an interesting point. And this is how I would suggest you, you maybe direct the thoughts of people who have questions about this. Is, is to say maybe where we have a lot of problems comes from the fact that we are exercising some cultural arrogance. We're trying to superimpose postmodern, post-enlightenment understanding on a totally different world, and it's the same kind of arrogance that would go from the West into an Eastern culture and say, you're not really all that unless you live the way the West does, and we understand that that is arrogant, and we understand that that is not the truth. So I would say that I think it's kind of arrogant and kind of this, like, I'm so smart, and I'm so woke, and I'm so much more advanced than the people in the Bible kind of attitude, because the only reality that kept a lot of vulnerable people alive was simply this reality of the, of the systems of polygamy in those days. And actually a, a good story in the Bible that's a good example of this would be the story of Ruth, where we are to see Boaz, the kinsman redeemer. We're supposed to see Jesus in Boaz. Boaz, working in, the bro in a broken system, refuses to dishonor Ruth, refuses to dishonor Naomi, and instead sees in them a great amount of integrity and a great amount of godly character and decides to diplomatically work within the system with other men who he knows will probably want to take advantage of Ruth more than they will want to actually care for her. And so he very carefully and very wisely games the system, right? He, he goes in and he actually bargains for something that is not necessarily good for his own estate in order to redeem. And so it's a picture of how God himself went into a broken system and gamed the system. He said, okay, yeah, you can operate this way, but he wasn't condoning it. He was taking the system and he was flipping it on its head and beginning to pull it forward toward what he always intended it to be. Uh, the story of the Old Testament is God saying, I want to get you back to the way I created things by f pulling you forward to the heaven that I'm going to restore to earth. Does that make sense? Let me, let me show you one other way that, that we can see this. Like the, the problem is really our problem, not God's problem. We're too smart and too powerful to see what God is doing because we're too woke and too modernized. And God is actually trying to deliver people and crush oppressors and wicked, wicked people 
God's trying to protect families and societies, but we think God must be doing something else. He must be evil. He must be oppressive. But we can actually look to Jesus to see what God is doing in the Old Testament. So there are some smart people that came to Jesus once to trap him, Matthew chapter 19, with a question about marriage and love and divorce. We've looked at this passage before, but I want to show you how it applies to these questions in the Old Testament. Matthew chapter 19, verse 3, it says, Some Pharisees came to him to test him. They asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? He said, Haven't you read that at the beginning the Creator made them male and female? He's like, Haven't you read page one of the Bible? You teachers of the law, haven't you read the first page of your law? And said, For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one. Therefore, what God has joined together, let man not separate. And here's, here's their retort to Jesus' smart aleck remark. They say, why then did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? So what they're saying is, yes, Jesus, we've read page one. What about page 572? That's what they're saying. And so Jesus says, Jesus replied, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard, but it was not this way from the beginning. I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for marital unfaithfulness and marries another woman commits adultery. So they are asking, can we divorce our wives like Moses said in the law in Deuteronomy? And he says, no, because that's not how it was in the beginning. In other words, yes, God gave Moses some laws to deal with the issues that arose amongst a broken people who were getting to know God and getting to know the ideal way to live. But I met them where they were at. I met them in their brokenness, and I was going to use them before they had it all together. And in order to do that, I couldn't just dump the perfection of heaven on them, so I gave them some ways to begin to move toward what Jesus would eventually fulfill. So what Jesus says is, while Deuteronomy was prescriptive to a people at a certain time, it was not His intention. The law prescribes, yes, but it was never supposed to be this way. It was never supposed to be this way. The plan and now the hope is beyond the law. Jesus says Moses permitted this at that time, to protect people, but also to lay the foundation for moving you forward. It was, pres- it was a prescription to lead your body to a healthier existence. It, it was a prescription for a people that were really, really, really sick. But you're not meant to be addicted to the prescription. You're meant to get healthy and live better, is what Jesus is teaching. It's supposed to move you forward to covenant. It's supposed to move you forward to what it was like in the beginning. That's how the law is fulfilled among you. That's why Jesus also taught, you have heard that it was said, but I tell you. He's saying that's what, that's what, what you needed at that time. You just needed a prescription because you were so far gone, we had to do something to get you somewhere closer to health. But now that the, you've, you've operated in the prescription, it's time to, it's time to change your lifestyle. It, it's, it's, time to, it's, it's time for a heart transplant. We've gotten your body. How, how about that? There's another, there's an, there's another analogy. When, you're, when you have to get a major procedure, everything else has to be right, right? So that's, that's what the law is. It's just a prescription to say, these are the things that your body needs to get in line before we do the real fixer-upper, before we do the heart transplant that, change, that changes everything. Does that make sense? To which the disciples replied, and I find this really interesting. The disciples said to him, if this is the situation between a husband and wife, it's better just not to get married. It's better just not to get married. And this is, this is the image that that conjures for me. It, it seems the disciples are looking at Jesus, wondering the same thing the Pevensey children wonder about Aslan in C.S. Lewis's Lion, Witch, in the Wardrobe. They asked Mr. and Mrs. Beaver, if you haven't read the books, yes, that's a real thing. They add, they're talking about Aslan, and they say, is he safe? And 
Mrs. Beaver replies, he's a lion. He's not safe, but he's good. But he's good. Which is the third bucket we need as we sort through love, sex, and marriage in the Old Testament? So we have the descriptive bucket, we have the, prescript, we have the prescriptive bucket, but then there's the narrative bucket. So the Old Testament is prescriptive at times, written to Israel to lead them forward to God's character and God's plan. But it's not prescriptive for us. It's written for us to learn about God's narrative story. What, is the, what do I mean by narrative story? What I mean is when we read the Old Testament, what we should mainly be looking for is the character of God and God's work in the world from beginning to end. Within these very confusing stories, in what ways is God's consistent character shining through? In what ways is He working to bring us back to the way things He were when He created them and forward to the way He intended it and is bringing all things into alignment with? Jesus shows us that as modern as we may be when we come to the Old Testament, God's intention for things is actually much greater than even our self-righteousness would ever reach for. So he says, you've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, but I tell you, anyone who hates his brother, you've heard that it was said, do not murder, but I tell you, anyone who hates his brother, if you just let your heart entertain the thought that that person is worth less than you and the world might be better off without them, you're actually breaking the spirit of the law. Because the world I intended, the world that I intended was a world that was completely absent of violence or even potential violence. Right? So we're supposed to look in the story and say, what is God like? How did he create things to be? And how do we see those things breaking through in spite of the brokenness of humanity throughout? We're supposed to read it as, as literature, like a really good novel, and see there's, there's some themes that remain true no matter how bad things get. One of those themes is that God is always good. God is always gracious. God is always just. And Jesus shows us that God is not safe. He wants far more for you than you could ever imagine on your own. But He is good. He never was and never will be the oppressor. He never was and never will be out of, it, out of touch with equality and liberation and healing and peace and love and everything else the world so desperately needs. Jesus meets us where we are. And people can't help but be attracted by His grace and His presence and His love. The most broken of people were and are drawn to Him. Prostitutes crooks like tax collectors and he meets them where they're at he levels the playing field and no longer he says there is no there is no one higher or lower it's just all people who need my grace in order for the world to be what it's what it's supposed to be he meets people used and abused prostituted and unclean crooked thieves and me too right where we're at he's good but he's not safe he'll meet us where we are but then he'll call us to the impossible. And when we look at him, we want to look at him like the disciples and say, you know, it's just better not to get married, I think. But he says, wait a second. It's hard, sure. And maybe it's almost impossible, but that's what I do. And that's your only hope. And you can believe that I can accomplish it because I met you where, you're, where you were at and you thought that was impossible too. How could a person like Tamar, how could a man like Judah... How could anything good come from Nazareth? But I'll lead you toward what was intended. I'll lead you toward the ideal. I will bring the healing. I will bring the fullness. I will bear the, the weight of the covenant on my own shoulders. And I will bring restoration. And before you write me off, remember that first I met Tamar. And I met you where you were at. And you thought that that was impossible before too. So that's how we understand they're really confusing stories. We understand them as descriptive of the broken human condition and our condition too. Descriptive of God's scandalous grace that's consistent throughout His goodness and faithful integrity to not hide behind religious pretense. And that it's prescriptive for a time with a good purpose. 
writing a narrative story about God's grace and power working for us in spite of us. That's how we read those stories. God, um, I'm really, really thankful for your Holy Spirit and um, how you have taught uh, many people different things about these really difficult texts so that um, today we have a fuller and more complete picture of your character than possibly at any point in history. What a gift, but also what um, a big responsibility we have that knowing all that we know, um, that your hope for us and your call to us now is to, to live in the impossible ways that nobody has ever lived, to, to bring about and be a part of bringing about the restoration of your kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. God, help us as we um, continue to engage these stories, um, to learn what you want us to learn um, from those lessons, and to see and, and discern your character in the midst of them, and to be able to communicate with our friends about these really difficult texts um, we pray for your wisdom, and we pray for your discernment, and uh, we just ask that you would give us favor as we go about fulfilling the Great Commission with your help. In Jesus' name, amen.